Good morning, everybody. This is moving on. We're moving on from Romans to 1 Corinthians. So, without Paul's leadership, the Corinthian church has become split into factions and personality cults. And the results in problems stem from a lot of division and a lack of unity. And this following letter is teaching and reproaching um, the church. And it's going to teach us a lot. Now, the Corinthians had sent Paul a list of questions. So, 1 Corinthians, if you want to read it this way, can be seen as Paul's answer in the Christian approach to some of the questions and some of the things he's heard. So, let's dive straight in with 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And if you want to read it first to get an overview of it before we carry on, that's great. So, chapter 1, the first three verses are Paul's customary introduction. He calls the Corinthians God's holy people. God has made them holy through Jesus, and he wants the church to be blessed with grace and peace. And then he reminds the church in Corinth, in verses 7 and 8, that you have every spiritual gift you need as you wait for the return of Jesus. He says he will keep you strong so that you will be free from all the blame on the day when Jesus returns. Now, he wants the church, even when they have to be disciplined, to be blessed in Christ. He wants them to know how highly he thinks of them first before he, uh, you know, as The Rock used to say in wrestling, lays the smack down. So the first five chapters of 1 Corinthians are Paul addressing the divisions of the church. And the major theme to come is the urging that, if you read chapter 1, verse 10, you must live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church. Now, while there is nothing wrong with enjoying the teaching and leadership of someone with talent and charisma, we need to be very careful we are not misplacing our faith in Christ for our faith in an attractive person who speaks well. It's very easy to get caught up in personality cults, both for the leader, who is eager for fame and recognition, and the congregation or the group of followers who fall in love with them. And in verse 13, Paul gives us this challenge. Was I crucified for you? Were any of you baptised in the name of Paul? Of course not. Now, leadership can be intoxicating. So too can being led with someone with great charisma be hypnotising. But as a church, the one and only leader must ultimately be Christ. So take a pause and think, how do we see the church's division or unity today? Is there a split is it getting better or worse? Think about why. So maybe read back 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 23. Now Paul knows what will divide the church. He knows it's clever arguments based on human wisdom and things that are attractive to us, and things that look like signs from heaven. Now Paul is very clear that the way God works and the way God's methods are seen and seen in Christ, are very upside down to the things that we would expect to see. He knows that the so-called, and in inverted commas, wise philosophers and miracle workers will hold sway on the hearts of people. He knows that kind of thing is going to capture people. And he understands that clever arguments will move people away from Christ and into the camp of a clever leader if we're not really careful. And he's not saying that clever arguments aren't valuable. I love a clever argument. Paul probably loves a clever argument. In fact, I'm pretty sure Paul gives a clever argument at some point. And it's not to say that miracles can't be from God, because they certainly can. Because, But look at 24, verse 24. To those called by God to salvation, Christ is the power of God, and Christ is the wisdom of God. And he says, the foolish plan of God is wiser than the wise. The weakness of God 
is stronger than the greatest human strength. And Paul is assuring us so that we can have no doubt that the weakness, which is the death of Christ, you know, physical death of Christ and serving himself up, and the foolishness, you know, of that sacrifice in Christ's ministry, in the countercultural practice of serving, suffering, slavery to others, loving others, not slavery to others, slavery to loving others. That is the weakness of God that is stronger than the human strength. And I think there is a huge challenge here in how we are going to perceive Christianity. How are we going to perceive following Christ? Is our faith, is our church more in line with this foolishness? This foolishness that says, I will lay my life down for you. This foolishness that says, my money and my goods and my riches and my fame have no importance to me over serving and loving other people. Or... Is our faith, is our Christianity, is our church more representative of the world's clever arguments? Does it look a bit, bit more like uh, a popular business or a popular concert? Now, Paul asked the church to think about how few of them are wise and rich and powerful when they were called by God. And he's making the case that more often than not, it is those no one would expect that God calls to do his good work. Jesus calls fishermen. Jesus calls a tax collector who is hated. Jesus calls a couple of zealots. We might call them terrorists. He's not. Jesus doesn't call the wisest Pharisee. He doesn't call the richest Roman. Now God chose those things despised by the world, things counted as nothing, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. That's verse 28. Christianity doesn't look like the world. It shouldn't look like the world. It should be mysterious to the world. Things that should not work, but in Christ work better than anything else. Things that are nothing to the world, but somehow are now everything in the church. Where the world would be divided with selfish ambition, the Christ ones, that's us, have unity in selfless love and service. Or, at least we should. So verse 30 says, God has united you with Christ... And in verse 31, so if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. Not about something that sounds a bit like the Lord. Not about something that looks a bit like the Lord, but is just us. Not something that says it's Christianity, but is just, you know, marketing and, you know, attractive people, you know, and great concerts. Not that there's anything bad with that, but don't boast about those. Boast only about the Lord. So chapter 2 Subtitled, A Message of Wisdom. Read chapter 2, verse 1 to 5, and take a couple of minutes. And ask, why do we think Paul teaches in this way? In verse 7 to 8, Paul explains that the wisdom he is teaching is the mystery of God. It's a hidden plan that's always been there for our ultimate glory that was set in place before the world began. And he explains that rulers through all history have misunderstood God's proper plan. Ask yourself, what examples through the Bible, from start to finish, demonstrate this mysterious plan, this upside-down plan of God? Where do you see this best example? That since becoming a Christian, and in all the times I've spent in church, I've often heard people ask what they thought God wanted them to do. And Paul doesn't give specific examples yet here, but he does give us a nice image for us to think about. He says, no one can know a person's thought except that person's spirit no one can know god's thoughts except god's own spirit and we have received god's spirit not the world's if we want to know what god has in mind or if we need to know god's wisdom for a time in our life 
we don't have to figure things out just on our own, but we have to seek after the Spirit of God and really humbly listen to him and what he has to say. In verse 14, Paul says, people who aren't spiritual can't receive these truths. There's only so much we can know from purely having like high intelligence and purely intellectual pursuits and through methods used by our world. There's nothing wrong with intelligence. There's nothing wrong with technology at all. It's brought us to a fantastic standard of living. But if we individually or as a congregation want to know the mind of God, we need to seek after his spirit in our hearts. We can't find out the mind of God by just going on the internet or playing with our phones or creating something new with our hands. Those things point towards, those things hint towards our ability to create and be alive and self-aware and love point towards God. But if we really want to know what God wants us to do, we have to seek after the spirit of God. We have to seek after Christ. We have to know him and then humbly accept that he is Lord and master, not us. So let's close this up. Are we seeking after the mind of Christ? Or do we spend too much time trying to understand God in our own way? And we may end up at a dead end and our relationships in the church body may not be what was intended for Jesus by Jesus if we are only seeking after God in our own terms. I'll speak to you again soon.